Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. My guest today is Mark Lane, a business and tax attorney and finance advisor based in Chicago. Mark is the pioneer and expert on entrepreneurship in socially responsible and mission-related investing. Mark is also responsible for the preparation of legislation in U.S. states that can leverage program-related investments to access trillions of dollars of market-driven capital for ventures with modest financial prospects, but the possibility of major social impact. Mark is the author of 36 books. In his latest books, The Mission-Driven Venture, he writes about the tools needed for becoming an agent of change and how to move from idea to reality with a step-by-step guide to design and implement mission-driven ventures. Welcome, Mark. Pleasure to be with you, Kai. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, you are a lawyer and uh, you work with legislators. And as a lawyer, you have been developing and promoting, uh, promoting juridical frameworks and laws over the years all with connection to today's crisis. We have now less time to solve our social, economic and environmental challenges in the society. But the good thing is that we already see solutions connected to circular economy, climate and finance in both policies and action. But why are legislators so late to meet climate crisis and other sustainability challenges in the society? How can lawyers and legislators this support change and accelerate with solution that already exist well uh, your your optimistic view is uh, much appreciated uh, uh but not everyone would agree that these solutions are within our reach and others in fact are not necessarily seeking to pursue those solutions uh, my law firm represents i would suspect more mission-driven ventures or social enterprises or nonprofits that have embraced an earned revenue strategy so as to become more financially sustainable than any other law firm in the country. And I deeply subscribe to the notion of the iconic dean of the Howard Law School, uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, uh, who himself was a civil rights advocate. And he said that a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. And I began the treatise that I wrote on social enterprise for the American Bar Association quoting him because I believe that all lawyers should be in the empowerment business. So not only have I drafted legislation to facilitate capital formation for mission-driven ventures around the United States, but laws that really uh, provide uh, financial support for mission-driven ventures. So for example, uh, I drafted the law in Cook County, which is the second largest county in the United States that uh, creates a, a preference and procurement for mission-driven ventures that seek to sell goods or services to the county or any of its agencies and departments. That includes the city of Chicago. And um, that recognizes the fact that the government 
should have a role as not only a, a legislator and a regulator, but as a convener, a collaborator, a catalyst. And to the extent that governments can elevate supply chains to value chains, seems to me that's an extremely important uh, evidence of thought leadership from policymakers. And indeed, Forbes magazine picked up on that legislation and recommended to the business community writ large that they might do the same and source goods and services from nonprofits that are producing or distributing products or for for-profit social purpose businesses, because by doing so, uh, there is a very significant external advantage throughout the community, lifting up people, lifting up families, lifting up communities, and thereby creating customers, creating taxpayers, uh, reducing uh, disadvantage within uh, economically disinvested communities, uh, but also providing hope for kids and hope for their families. So, you know, you talk about circularity and I think there are lots of different ways of thinking about circularity, but I, I look at the fact that we see um, all of the economic sectors in society, which at one time were neatly siloed, pursuing each its own aim, now converging. And we find nonprofits becoming um, entrepreneurs becoming less dependent on government contracts and grants, less dependent on philanthropy with its vagaries. We see investors not only looking to maximize financial returns and minimize risks, but actually looking for social return on investments as impact investors. Uh, we see the traditional business community um, moving gently, gradually away from the notion of shareholder promises toward stakeholder capitalism. So for each for its own reasons uh, is finding uh, opportunities to collaborate with one another. And uh, I think the lawyer's role is really to, uh, it, it, to kind of ease those relationships and find opportunities uh, of shared value, ways in which uh, value propositions can be created so that everybody gets the benefit of his bargain, even though those bargains may be different. Some may be looking at financial returns, some may be looking at social returns, some may be looking at social returns, some may be looking at driving positive social change, some may be lifting up their organizations. But it's important that we look at each of these social problems from a market-based perspective and finding uh, a creative and innovative and indeed disruptive ways to bring together necessary or desirable stakeholders around the solution to social problems, to use your term, but in a way that galvanizes all the other players who have a, who have a vested interest in that solution and educate them to see why those solutions will serve their uh, parochial purposes. And when you do that, it seems to me, we find as members of uh, common society uh, that these, these um, solutions are not parochial at all, but universal. But it seems to, to be a problem with the, uh, the legislators uh, to understand uh, how to change the laws to meet the new demands. Uh, when we talk about circular economy, from silo thinking to system thinking, but most of the legislation I, tools are working as silos. So you really need- Well, I will say, <laughs> yeah, I will say uh, 
not only system thinking, but design thinking. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and to me, that's a, a, that's a place where the lawyer comes in as well, because if, if you look at the, what the objective of a specific client might be, uh, rarely does the client frame the solution in the most efficient way to get to the result that the client is seeking to achieve. So I always invite a client to allow me to take his framing of the issue and make it my own and see if I can persuade him that there might be another way of thinking about it, both tactically and strategically. So when we think about framing an issue, um, I wrote, I'll give you a specific example as it relates to public policy and legislation. Yeah, do so. Uh, when I wrote the, may I do that? Yes. So when, when, when I, thank you, when I wrote the L3C legislation for the state of Illinois, and the L3C is the only for-profit business form in the United States that puts mission above all other objectives permanently and irrevocably. And there are very significant uh, opportunities that derive from that kind of a form in terms of governance and in terms of capital formation and in terms of positioning in the marketplace and so on. But when I wrote that law, um, I shepherded through our state legislature in Illinois and um, it passed unanimously in both houses. And we have some progressives, some Democrats, some liberals, but we also have some Republicans, some conservatives. And then when it came time to have the governor sign the legislation, he said, well, how did, how did you get that? How did you have unanimous approval by both parties in both houses? Because he saw this as kind of a liberal or progressive tool. And I told him a little story. I said, you know, the Committee of Original Jurisdiction in the Illinois Senate was the Judiciary Committee. And the Judiciary Committee had me testifying for two and a half hours about the L3C. Uh, this was 13 lawyers, talk about lawyers. And some of their questions were good. Some of their questions reflected that they really didn't understand what it was all about. Some of the questions reflected some agenda that was misplaced. And I was very patiently responding to all of the questions. Um, if we use this L3C for our social enterprises, you'll just simply use the LLC, the traditional uh, limited liability company, right? And I said, well, that's one possibility, Senator. Another possibility is that the venture would go to another state that might be more hospitable and take the jobs it represents with it. As soon as I mentioned the word jobs, that became the last question in the committee. The legislation was then unanimously voted out of the committee. The legislation was then moved on to the Senate floor, unanimously approved, and moved to the Senate and approved, moved to the House and approved there. So when I talked to the folks in the Senate and in the House, when talking with the liberals, the progressives, the Democrats, <clears throat> I described the L3C as an enhancement to the social safety nets to improve the delivery of social services and to pursue uh, market-based solutions to social problems. And that explanation resonated with them. When I talked talk to the uh, conservatives, the Republicans, 
I reframed the purpose of the L3C as allowing governments to do more with less and empowering the business community and empowering the investment community. Well, that explanation resonated with them. I was absolutely truthful and factual as to all of those uh, legislators, but each heard what he or she needed to hear to get behind the L3C law. Well, I followed that pattern in driving public policy of all sorts throughout the United States. And it's never failed to work because it's always been a case of giving them what they want to serve their constituents. And the reality is that social enterprise does just that. It does in fact bring all of us together, give us new investment opportunities that can generate financial returns, sometimes outsized financial returns. It does allow for new business opportunities. It does allow for nonprofits to become more self-sufficient, uh, creating business opportunities that allow them to diversify sources of revenue while also driving mission and becoming less dependent on the kindness of strangers. Uh, and it works for the citizens, citizenry writ large because it increases contributions to the tax base. It increases jobs. It lifts up families. It does all the things we want to do as a society, as a humanity economy. Mm -hmm. And I think, therefore, it's a case of framing. And similarly, the role of the lawyer is a case of framing, where the lawyer now is to see this is new way to add value to relationships with his clients and his prospective clients, mm -hmm. and also being a good uh, officer of the court, a good public servant in his own right, even if he is not holding public office, but rather engaged in the private practice of law. And it brings us all together around issues that are important to all of us. Where do you see the L3C implemented today? Where do I see it? Yeah. There are uh, something north of 2000 L3Cs in the United States now, um, and they are growing in number and growing in versatility. So um, about half of the L3Cs are freestanding, for-profit, social purpose businesses. Mm. The other half, more or less, are tied to operating charities that are looking to create businesses as instrumentalities of mission, but as instrumentalities of business strategy, where their businesses can themselves drive mission. The L3C tracks, <coughs> excuse me, the L3C tracks uh, federal tax requirements for private foundations that realize tax benefits in their own right because uh, they are doling out money for charitable or similar purposes. The L3, the foundations are typically achieving that uh, satisfying those obligations through dispensing of grants to charities. What the L3C allows them to do is to support entrepreneurial ventures, even in terms of equity ownership by the foundation, which nevertheless satisfies the distribution requirement just as a grant would have. So from an accounting perspective, 
a foundation has a choice. It can either make a grant, which is an expense, uh, does its homework, it likes a given nonprofit, it likes its theory of social change, it likes its management, it writes a check, it hopes for the best, but that money is gone for all times. Mm. Or it can make an investment. And there are certain requirements for the investment to qualify, but essentially it needs to be charitable or educational or something on that order. And the foundation is filling a market gap because the charitable investments may not have the same financial returns that a venture capitalist is seeking or may not pay off as fast, may be more speculative. Mm -hmm. So uh, the foundation is encouraged to fill that market gap with so-called program related investments in lieu of grants or in addition to grants. Mm -hmm. But when it does that, when it makes an investment, whether it's debt or equity, those investments, unlike grants, remain on the balance sheet of the foundation to be recovered one day. So if it's debt, when the loan it matures, the capital comes back to the foundation with interest to be recycled, in theory, perpetually. Mm-hmm. So there's a financial multiplier effect when you have a, an investment that you don't have in the form of a grant. Similarly, you have a social multiplier effect when you've made an investment that you don't have in the form of a grant. And the same holds true if the investment is equity, because one day there will be a liquidity event and the money will come back to the foundation, hopefully with appreciation, and that money too can be recycled. So the foundation, from its perspective, sees that is a way of being a better steward of the resources entrusted to it than a mere grant might be. From the nonprofit's point of view, by establishing an L3C subsidiary affiliate, one, it has access to equity investment, which otherwise it would not have because nonprofits have no equity to sell, they have no owners. Here we're creating a for-profit affiliate, which has its own equity, which it can peddle to investors, equity investors, which opens up a universe of choices and a continuum of investment that otherwise would be foreclosed to the charitable community. But there's also a governance advantage to the charity because by having an L3C, which itself by law has a charitable objective per wave through an operating agreement, There's no daylight between the exempt purpose of the nonprofit parents and the charitable purpose of the business subsidiary it owns. So from a management perspective, both are pulling in the same direction for the same reasons. There are other advantages as well, but those are some of the reasons that people are gravitating toward L3Cs. And some of the major foundations are now requiring that L3Cs be the vehicle of choice for charities to receive program-related investments because it gives the foundation the confidence of knowing the money is going to be used by an entity that checks all the boxes from a federal tax requirements perspective. 
we, we are in the field of money, money with meaning and how you can create a legal structure for, for that type of, of uh, development in our society. And have you reached out outside the U.S. with this uh, dialogue and uh, opportunity for implementation of, of this yes. type of law? Yes, we are working with a number of um, companies, um, NGOs, and even governments outside of the United States. Uh, the O3C accommodates beautifully a tranched capital structure where uh, you can bring in um, patient capital or even non-dilutive capital as an early investor. By foregoing market rate returns, that investor is effectively subsidizing uh, risk-adjusted financial returns for other investors who come in concurrently or subsequently. We have a very uh, hospitable tax ruling in the United States that permits U.S. foundations to make program-related investments to ventures outside the United States and still qualify as a program-related investment. We also can have non-U.S. investments become investors or strategic alliance partners with L3Cs in the United States. So just as I'm seeing a convergence of sectors in the U.S., I'm seeing a community of interest that becomes global, uh, including U.S. and non-U.S. partners, sometimes including no U.S. participation. But all of that is available today, and uh, we're seeing increasingly interest in um, players outside the U.S. So, for example, if you look in the U.K. at the CIC, uh, which is in some ways similar to the L3C, the CIC has a cap on earnings um, and distributions. We don't have such a cap in the L3C. Uh, the CIC, of course, has modification in its law over the years, uh, giving a little greater flexibility in that regard. But we knew from the get-go, we wanted to appeal to entrepreneurs who are going to be motivated, and we wanted to have the widest, largest field of players who would have, be seeking both financial returns and social returns, or who would engage financial players and or social players, being essentially uh, the deal maker around those efforts. And we're doing a lot of work, for example, in the COVID field, uh, yeah. where today we are working with a number of scientists around the world who have various solutions for therapeutics or other approaches to working with universities around the world. Uh, we're working with um, scientists around the world, working with trans uh, technology transfer people. Uh, so every social problem as it arises, we look at the externalities of those social problems and hit directly the social problem, but also recognize that many of these social problems reflect the many faces of poverty and disadvantage. And we seek to address those as well. Each of those may present its own unique business opportunity that can be addressed collaborative, collaboratively through various kinds of stakeholders. Yeah, let me take you to another part of, uh, uh, of the sectors in, in society and, and also business model. Um, when we look looking into the cooperative model, you know, the cooperatives are, are the second biggest NGO in the world with one billion members with focus on money with meaning. Uh, and of course, this was developed under the 20th century. 
you have everything from the Japanese consumers and their health model of Han groups or to working coops, the Mondragon Society in Spain. We have in Sweden what we call the Financing Co-op uh, Commune Invest, which is uh, promoting green bond development. Are these type of companies loser or winner in the future society? Uh, and it's, it's significant. Migragon, of course, was an early leader and they've had a checkered history in terms of outcomes. But we were learning a lot from them and from others that followed them in, in, uh, in various countries, in Italy, Sweden, we've looked at all of those models. Uh, in the United States, uh, worker ownership is, um, under, um, is a subject of great support. Governmentally, I was involved in rewriting uh, the Illinois worker-owned cooperative. Uh, statutes. Uh, I've used the L3C as a worker co-op surrogate in states that do not have as uh, friendly a cooperative approach. And of course, it's tied to federal and state tax rules as well. But the whole point is, if you're going to take an employee and make him an owner, you've created incentives, you've given him respect and self-respect, you've given him a path to wealth, that he will never have as an employee. And there are benefits that spill over in terms of community, in terms of his family, in terms of young people who now see different paths available to them. So the, the, the employee ownership in, in various forms, the employee stock ownership plan, uh, uh, various kinds of uh, cooperatives, a variety of models in the United States and throughout the world are extremely powerful and have the support of government, have the support of the traditional business community, certainly have the support of consumers. And I think all of that is really important. Um, we, we, we're using it, um, one of the models I can point to specifically is within uh, the manufacturing uh, sector. Uh, we find in urban areas in the United States uh, privately held manufacturing companies owned by white male baby boomers who are approaching retirement age, but have no succession plans. So we've created a nonprofit organization to identify those players through an early warning system through the union. And the union will, they'll call, will they'll call those companies to our attention. We will then approach those owners about being bought out at fair market value when they're ready to sell. And they are then sold to uh, women and people of color who are often the employees of those companies and have institutional knowledge. And we give them technical assistance and training. We give them financing. We do the due diligence. We do the valuation. Uh, we facilitate the transaction where they get put into ownership and uh, the owner gets taken out when he wants to at fair value, and then we stick with it to ensure that the venture continues to be a success. And with the exuberance of a new generation coming in, uh, we're looking for those new owners now to expand those businesses, hire new people who also will have a stake in the venture. But now other companies will come into those communities to service those employees, those families who now are entrepreneurs, but also to serve those companies that are resurrected, they have a new breath of life. So it becomes a catalyst for a community. It is a contributor to the tax base. 
So we end up with a situation which is pro-business, pro-labor, and pro-community, all through one integrated solution and all using employee ownership as the key. Yeah, well, I, I, I understand this. And, and also I have seen a lot of good examples of this type of development. And of course, when we go back and look at Mondragon in, in North Spain, yes. uh, we have some experience to see. But you also in London today, you had John Lewis and Waitress, who is owned by, by the people who work there. And we have uh, other consumer corps uh, which are trying to find new ways and, and, and putting in the, the money with meaning in the daily business. Lawyers in, in the traditional meaning, uh, they don't know a lot uh, about this type of structure of, of, uh, of companies and, and um, which um, has been a problem. I could see in Scandinavia it, it has been a big problem to to get um, lawyers to understand and law firm to understand this type of cooperative, uh, also law uh, legal structure. Uh, lawyers will gravitate toward those sorts of market-based opportunities out of their own self-interest, but also as good citizens, good citizens within their communities. So I, I think lawyers too are you know no different from other business no. people in the sense that they you know, are looking for market-based opportunities and to the extent that, you know, they can be uh, flexing their social conscience at the same time, uh, that becomes increasingly irresistible. So I have hope. Yeah, great. Well, one, one of the thinking, uh, wh where do you find the dialogue for this type of development? And then I met you in, 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 in San Francisco when we went to SOCAP, the social capital yes, market. Sir. And, and um, uh, this is one way of how to support the dialogue and to, to exchange experience. And how do you see SOCAP uh, supporting these mission-driven business solutions? Well, you know, anytime that you have a platform that brings like-minded people together, there, there is opportunity for education, there's opportunity for interaction, there's opportunity for collaboration. Uh, so I applaud that. When I, I founded uh, the first chapter in the Social Enterprise Alliance Network in the United States, which is the membership organization of nonprofits that are pursuing an earned revenue strategy as well as social purpose businesses. And it happened to be in Chicago. I was general counsel for Social Enterprise Alliance nationally. And uh, I was uh, invited to set up the first chapter in the network. There are now 17 chapters around the country. And at that time, uh, some 12 years ago, I learned something very interesting. There were a lot of social enterprises in the Chicago metropolitan area, which is a very large metropolitan area. But number one, they didn't necessarily use that label. They didn't see themselves as social enterprises. Two, they didn't know others like themselves existed. And therefore, they could not interact with one another or learn from one another. So as a consequence of that, uh, the early lesson or one of the early lessons that I learned from that chapter, which continues to this day, is all of our programming will always include networking to give everyone an opportunity to get acquainted with one another and see, you know, what you're doing that I might learn from, what I'm doing that you might learn from, and who knows, um, we might find ways to collaborate or do business together, and that has become you know, one of the greatest values of Social Enterprise Alliance, and I'll say the same thing about SOCAP. 
the, the good work that gets done at SOCAMP, yes, a lot of it is done in kind of the breakout sessions and the plenaries and so on. But I would say as good a work is also done in the hallways between the meetings or over lunch where people now get acquainted and get to know one another. SOCAP, of course, is built around the notion of social capital, financing these ventures, which is obviously a significant need. But there are other needs too. There are needs in terms of capacity building. There are needs in terms of business planning. There are needs in terms of technology. There are needs in terms of legal structure. Uh, there are needs in terms of public policy that will be friendly toward these ventures. I could go on and on. But to the extent that we know each other and learn from one another, just as we met each other, and now we're having this podcast. Well, unlikely we would have had this podcast had SOCAP not existed, affording us the opportunity, Kai, for us to get acquainted and learn about one another. So I think that really becomes the genesis of all of this good work is learning about other people and what they've accomplished. My book, The Mission Driven Venture, is all stories of social entrepreneurs who had an idea about how to solve a social problem using market-based strategies, but encountered difficulties and how they overcame those difficulties through legal strategies, financial strategies, other strategies. They all happens to be stories of clients of mine, but who gave permission to talk about them. But we learn from one another. And that's why that book is, you know, on the one hand, my treatise on social enterprise that I wrote for the American Bar Association, hoping to uh, elevate law practices to become engines of social change. And some of them are becoming that in the US and elsewhere. But beyond that, I wanna make sure that prospective social entrepreneurs and those that work with them or surround them or support them understand you know, the kinds of challenges they're gonna face and what kinds of solutions are out there just illustratively to inspire them. It may not be exactly the right answer for this specific problem, but it, it gives you the confidence to know that there are likely our answers to each of these problems as they're encountered. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's what we learned from a SOCAP. That's what we learned from Social Enterprise Alliance. And indeed, that's what we learned from your podcast, Kai. And thank you for doing this. Well, um, do you have any advice to the listener who are interested to, to go into this field? Is it in a particular network or other uh, connection that you would like to advise for people who are interested to, to take these issues on board? I think more there are a number of things. Read your book, of course, but... <laughs> well, I, <laughs> thank you for that. I appreciate that. Uh, I think a number of the universities have various programs in corporate social responsibility, social impact, social innovation. So those are repositories of knowledge and learning. And there are different uh, certificate programs and there are faculty members who are helpful. There are apprenticeship and mentoring programs available. Um, there are in different cities, uh, different uh, organizations convening uh, social entrepreneurs in the United States. There is social enterprise, but also uh, uh, social venture partners. There are many organizations. Uh, you know, I would encourage you to get on social media and see what organizations and entities 
are within your community? What resources are available to you? And I would be delighted to chat with any prospective social entrepreneur, uh, helping them uh, uh, consider how they might enter the space and what opportunities are available to them and what um, impediments they might encounter and how they might overcome those impediments. Mm -hmm. let, me, let us go into uh, another field of this discussion and we talk about the CSR and corporate social responsibility and big business role. In your book, uh, The Mission Driven Venture, we can get an insight in the last 30 years of development from basic nonprofit to big multinational with CSR values. But it is about how business are driving the seed for social change. Do you see thoughtful leaders in today's business? Are today's business leaders driver for change away from traditional capitalism? How deep are their commitment to social responsibilities? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, there has been uh, a lot of energy around this space and a lot of conversation around it. We have uh, the Business Roundtable, which is a convening of some of the major company CEOs who have expressed commitment. Uh, they've done it in lots of different ways. Uh, stakeholder capitalism, where they're looking not only to drive maximum financial value to shareholders, but looking at other stakeholders to whom they now recognize that they ought to be accountable, including the customers, the community, the environment, um, uh, pensioners, um, uh, all, all of the different players who are important to them. Um, but they're, they're also recognizing that there has been significant distrust of business. And, you know, out of their own self-interest, that needs to turn around. Uh, it has impact in terms of shareholder support. It, ha it has impact in terms of how they manage risk as a company. Uh, if you look at issues of diversity and inclusion and equity, if they want to have, uh, if they want to be able to recruit and retain good employees, especially millennials and younger, they're going to need to show that they're good corporate citizens. Uh, if they want to, um, if they want to uh, recognize, have, have it be recognized that um, they're good corporate citizens, they're going to have to have a serious uh, uh, carbon neutral strategy, because otherwise their shareholders will say, I don't want to bet on you, because you're going to fail. And you're also not necessarily the best leader in your peer group, if you don't understand the importance of climate change. So this is really self-preservation. Uh, I'm also finding in this age of COVID, in the United States, this age of racial reckoning and civil unrest, uh, 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 social impact is a new currency. So whereas uh, corporate social responsibility has for the most part historically been public companies and private companies writing checks to sponsor events, but really not having any buy-in. Now they're seeing, how can we really get involved? How can we partner with charities? I mentioned supply chains. I mentioned also investments. Uh, they want to be associated with driving social change as agents of change in their own rights, because that's where CSR is headed. Now, a lot of it today is conversation, but the good ones, the ones that are going to be surviving, the ones that are going to be seeing their stock, stock price tick up, uh, will be the ones that are accountable to all stakeholders. I wrote a book years ago on socially responsible investing and how those companies who are in fact leaders in environmental and social and governance practices, I proved out empirically 
over time, those are the companies whose stock price actually outperforms their peers for a lot of good reasons. Uh, it is a risk management technique. It is also a way today of attracting capital because people look at those things and those things should be looked at and not only superficially, but substantively because they are indicators of future success. If you look at stock price as discounting future profitability, future profitability includes how are they dealing with the social issues of our time? How are they dealing with governance issues in terms of transparency and accountability? Uh, those are all issues that stakeholders, including shareholders, find valuable. And guess what? There's no difference between a shareholder wants and other stakeholders want because shareholders also will benefit. The argument of shareholder primacy is Milton Friedman's ancient argument that no longer holds water. It is today about stakeholders, all stakeholders, not excluding shareholders, but neither having shareholders at the top of the pack. All of them looked at where management has an obligation to account to each and every one of them because that is in the best interest of the corporate community and all the stakeholders they serve. I, I, I just want to thank you for your extraordinary leadership and the way in which you're leveraging your thought leadership and the leadership of others around the world who are concerned about driving social change in innovative and disruptive ways. And I think your podcast is extraordinary in terms of instrumentality of change. And I wish you well with your podcast. I will listen each and every time you post one. And, and I think your leadership is, is extraordinary. And I am grateful to have been included in this podcast. Thank, Thank you, you so very Mark. much. Thank you very much, Mark. My pleasure. I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month. And each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more. Visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening.